Because the reality is there are many things we can do in work that don't require us to be physically present in the same place. But there are also many things that do require us to be physically present or that are improved when we're physically present. And figuring out what that is and figuring out that balance and how to make that work with time and space and offices and travel and people's calendars and expectations and personal lives is a really, really difficult thing to do. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is uh, David Sachs. And David is the author of five books. I've read them all except Save the Deli, uh, though I, I guess I have to get that to that because I do like corned beef or smoked meat on, on rye. But his most recent book and the topic of our conversation is The Future is Analog. And I think it's your subtitle is how to create a more human world, right, David? And it's really yeah. a look at like what we've learned from COVID. So David, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Bart. Yeah, I do think, you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, I should say that that our relationship goes way back to what was it like grade two, grade grade one? Did we we were in in grade school together, right? Yes, it goes back to elementary school. I mean, we were very, very close in those years. And then I guess just, you know, we went to different schools and didn't see each other for a while and reconnected just in the past couple of years yeah. again. Your wife has, has uh, provided me some great coaching. And um, but I think back to like the time that we grew up as like we kind of were in this analog world, right? Like we're the you know, we're 43 and both of us, I feel like like our kids will grow up never knowing a world that is not like deeply digitally connected. And so I'm kind of grateful that we had those formative years without like the world of digital. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, like some of the first experiences I had with digital technology were at your house. You know, I think your dad was an early adopter of computers. And I remember you had, you had this really cool, like it was like peak eighties, but like kind of sunken living room. And underneath it, there was this like secret cubby room. Yes. Oh my God. I totally remember that. Yes. Like, you know, (laughs) and your dad had a, a, a PC, maybe it was like a compact or maybe even an actual IBM. And we used to play, you know, Zaxxon 3D. Oh, <laughs> we're dating ourselves here. <laughs> but yeah, possibly some Qbert. There was some Qbert there. Yes, um, that was that was amazing. It was this. It was the the introduction to this this technology that had so much potential, and it was incredible. And we would do all sorts of cool things with it. And you know, fast forward now, and that technology is central to so much of our work life, personal lives, mm-hmm. um, the way we the way we shop, the way we communicate, the way we do all sorts of things, the way we're recording this podcast, right? So it was interesting because we are really a generation that grew up 
not entirely without computers because we had them like they were you know we had nintendo we had video games we had all these you know you know we were there at the sort of introduction of all these technologies pcs the internet handheld devices you know laptops cell phones smartphones like so we're kind of this one of the generations that's really kind of seen this this transition for our kids digital technology is something that's always been there it's always just part of the landscape it's part of the infrastructure of life yeah and i think you know it really the last couple of years with covid it dramatically accelerated this enmeshment of technology. And I think, you know, you, you wrote so many great pieces during COVID on how we were promised that we could essentially live our lives digitally. And then the experience of it really sucked. <laughs> you know, it sucked hard. <laughs> and uh, whether it was schools or work, um, it, it just hollowed out so much that was special. And I know your book, The Future is Analog, looks at kind of the reckoning. And so the reason I wanted to have you on the pod is you know, first of all, everyone listening should buy the book. But I think if we focus on work, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about as so many people emerge from COVID, how they're returning to work, whether they're returning to work, or even if it will ever go back, is fundamentally change, you know, different than what we might have anticipated. And there are some implications for how we communicate, how we lead, that I think you have some insights into that Anyone who wants to be better connected with people, wants to be a better leader, would be would be wise to pursue. So maybe just start with the book. Like, what led you to write the book, and what were some of the big conclusions that you drew in its creation? So the book really did come out of the experience of COVID. Um, you know, I, I had been thinking about the topic a little bit beforehand. So I had written a book on a similar topic in that came out in 2016, and that book was called The Revenge of Analog. And that really looked at the emerging phenomenon that we were seeing of non-digital goods and services and businesses that were growing again, despite all the predictions of their demise. So this is, you know, why were we seeing vinyl records coming back? And, and why did they keep growing year after year after year? There are so many paper notebook companies around, like Moleskine and other ones, that, you know, anyone who was working in a creative industry, even a digital industry, had, had to have one on the desk next to their tablet and their laptop and their phone. And it was sort of the central technology. Why were film cameras coming back? Why are we seeing independent bookstores growing again in the age of Amazon? What was going on? You know, we were told there's this sort of narrative about where technology was taking us and what the future was. And these things were counter to it. And that book really investigated that and tried to get at the deeper reasons behind it. So I was already familiar with the topic, an expert on the topic, a voice on the topic. And when the pandemic began, I started getting a lot of requests for interviews. I had actually had another book come out at the time. It was a book about entrepreneurship, but I was getting more requests for interviews on the analog topic. And 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 the, the questions I was getting were very similar. It was, you talk about analog, what do you think the future of analog is? Does it have a future? Because we're being told that this is the new normal, that now that we are transitioning and are working from home and are learning from home and are shopping from home. And we can pretty much do everything we want, pray, play, exercise, socialize, you know, through these devices, there's no going back. And we heard this, you would hear this, you know, you would turn on the business news or you would go on LinkedIn and people were like, this is it. The transition is happening. We've, <laughs> we've accelerated 15 years. In, this is in great. Yeah. And just, there's no going back. There's no going back to the office. There's no going back to schools. You know, this is permanently changing our world. 
Um, we were being thrust into the digital future that we'd long been promised and had been predicted was sort of this inevitable thing that was arising. And I just said, well, hold on. Who, who says that this is a permanent state of things? Because I had already chronicled that, you know, digital evolution, digital technology doesn't just unfold in this one, you know, hockey stick way, like uh, Moore's law dictates that a transistor is going to double in speed and processing power every 18 months, right? Um, that the real world doesn't work that way. Sometimes you can have things digitize, but you can also have the analog things grow. And, and what I found is that once something does become digital, like for example, a bookstore with Amazon, the value of the analog equivalent of it, so the physical bookstore, the independent bookstore, the brick and mortar bookstore, it changes and it actually elevates, becomes more valuable. It becomes apparent. It's not just judged on its sort of purely cost or process driven way. Your point makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, um of a great book I read free many years ago. And it said, you know, new economies of abundance create new economies of scarcity. You know, it talked about how music, for example, we can have so much access to this digital music like never before. And yet records and concert tickets have never been more expensive and popular because they right. are, you know, not accessible to the same degree. So, so yeah, this book, was kind of my answer to that question. What is the future of analog? And to this assumption that the future inevitably is gonna be digital. That digital will, you know, that, that the new normal that we had seen this permanent shift and that there was no going back. And I was saying, hold on, is that true? As the, the years of the pandemic went from, you know, that spring into, what are we, three years in now, what we got to do was test drive that promised digital future, that new normal. And in many ways, we, we've pulled back from it. We've rejected a lot of it. You see the stock prices and the sales of Zoom subscriptions are way down, a Peloton. I was going to say, I've got a Peloton you might want. <laughs> yeah, my mother-in-law has one. You know, there's, there's tons of them sitting around. Um, well, bike sales have never been higher, right? And, and still you can't, and I know you're a big bike guy, like you still can't get your hands I weigh the a year and a month for my recent bike. So let's let's focus in on work, because I think a lot of people in the work world, whether you're in government or, or business or tech or whatever, are all grappling with like years of like, we're going to go back to the office. We're not going to go back to the office. We're going to get rid of, you know, teams. We're not, you know, we're and, and I feel that there's still very much. a Let's see. We're going to try things out. No one really knows. So what are what are some big conclusions that you've drawn about work? being analog or not in the years ahead? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the, the, the main conclusion I, I, I think we can draw now about the current state of things and the future is that it is unknown and it's a tremendous experiment and everybody wants a binary answer. They want a, a yes or no. Give me a binary answer, this, Dave. That's why I had you on the podcast. This, Come on. Rent, <laughs> rent. Everybody should rent the equivalent right. of 40 square feet of office space in class A office space per employee. Right. Um, uh, you know, like everybody needs that because there's investments that have to be made. There's hard costs associated with it. people want a sort of sense of certainty, but it isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take decades of experimentation and trial and error and each company each employee each worker each organization whether they're big or small or each team is really struggling to find that balance and that's fine 
like I think that the problem is when people are expecting some answer that's this great solution because the reality is there are many things we can do in work that don't require us to be physically present in the same place but there are also many things that do require us to be physically present or that are improved when we're physically present and figuring out what that is and figuring out that balance and how to make that work with time and space and offices and travel and people's calendars and expectations and personal lives is a really, really difficult thing to do. And so the first thing that anyone who's tasked with doing this has to do is just accept that it's a really, really difficult thing to do. But nobody's gotten it right and nobody will probably ever get it right. In the same way of like, open office, closed office, downtown office, suburban office, like everyone has always been trying to figure out how to do this thing. And it never gets to where it needs to be because there is no end destination. There's no sort of perfect thing. Like, yeah, you go read a Malcolm Gladwell book and he talks about how Patagonia has, you know, 150 people in an office. Like that's, those are, those are rare exceptions. And I know people who have worked at Patagonia and like, I know some of them have had negative experiences. So it's, I'm sure someone from McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group will happily take a million dollars from your company and like tell you the perfect solution or the Herman Miller company will like sell you the perfect desk that can turn into a bed, that can turn into a chair, that can turn into a a sofa. But the reality is like what happened with the pandemic, it really upended the sort of world of the office and, and neither of those binary solutions everybody's coming completely back to the office and we're doing it the way we've always done it for a hundred years or everybody's working from home and you never need to come into an office again are going to satisfy organizations, individuals, teams, and so forth. And that messy middle always involves sacrifice and trade-offs. So anytime you are asking someone to travel with their physical body to a place there is a sacrifice that's being made of time, of a carbon output, of the inability to be other places during that that period of time, of the sacrifice that they have to make for their own personal life, their family, you know, who's 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 dropping the kids at school because I got a meeting this morning, or I'm gonna be in Montreal tomorrow. And so you're gonna have to, you know, do this and take the kids to the dentist and hockey and swim or whatever. Like that, those are those are sort of real sacrifices. And on the other end of things, okay, well, you know, everything, anytime you say, well, we're gonna do this online, you're going to lose the analog benefits of bringing people together in the same space. You're gonna lose um the the natural abilities for people to understand and communicate when they are speaking with each other in a shared space. Right. So that's body language, that's flied ideas, eye contact, the ability to use that physical space to communicate things, to bring up a model of something, to write on a whiteboard or a piece of paper, or to use gestures that don't work on a small screen or a large screen or any sort of two-dimensional interface or even some sort of Mark Zuckerberg BS interface of 3D, right? You're also going to lose passive communication of ideas and understanding through uh, what this one researcher, Andres Hofbrauer, um, I spoke with called embodied cognition, which is 
you know, as we move through the shared space of the office or the conference set up at some gray Marriott somewhere, like each time I walk by your desk and I see a drawing of something or a model of something, or I have a brief conversation with you as we're on our way to the elevator, I gain a greater understanding of you, the thing we're, you're working on, the project we're working on together, uh, the way we work, the way you communicate, and the sense of this greater cohesive thing that adds up to a common knowledge, which again, information online, information in the digital world, it has to be thought of as information with a capital I, and it has to be sort of codified into text or images or sound or some combination of them, um, whether it's a Slack channel or a PowerPoint or an email or a text message or whatever. It's like, here is the information, right? This is the information you need to know about this thing. Whereas I could pick that up by walking by your desk and seeing part of that information and I don't even know it, it enters my mind. Mm -hmm. You lose all those things when you shift work into the digital world. And so it could still go on, right? I mean, the amazing thing of it that we learned about the pandemic was, you know, Thursday was like, oh, everybody better take their laptops home because uh, I don't know how long we're going right. to be in the office. <laughs> right. And Monday, it wasn't like every company went bankrupt. Like, no, business work, kept on. Business you know? kept going. Like, yeah, like everyone was, you know, able to sort of continue. But over time, those subtle gaps, those things were really missing and you and you had the rise of burnout and zoom fatigue and the sense of dislocation that was most certainly connected to the physical dislocation we had from work and so it you know any anything you're doing is going to have that trade-off just to jump in here dave just to kind of summarize and then i have a third question i'm going to ask about conclusion so conclusion one is look no one really knows where this is going to end up second it's going to be there are inherent trade-offs to your point, you know, of the costs and the benefits of being in person and being analog, but it comes with trade-offs. And the third question I want to ask you, you know, I often hear people use these kind of heuristics about, well, young people earlier in their career want to be in the office because they're losing out mentoring and people with kids don't want to be in the office. But I'm wondering if you had, if you encountered anything that either validated this, these kind of generational assumptions, or put them to bed as inaccurate? What did you find in your in your research? Uh, my research over the years in many topics finds that generational assumptions are bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you cannot make a sweeping statement about an entire percentage <laughs> of the population based upon the year that they were born. Uh, the same demographic of people who created social media and you know are the natives to smartphones are the exact same ones who are driving sales of paper books at bookstores and vinyl <laughs> records and you know all these other sort of totems of, of an analog resurgence right it's not people like our parents who were like holding on to that old technology you know baby boomers love an ipad they love nothing more than Zoom. Right. Um, they still, like my agent who's in his 70s is always like, let's do a Zoom. And I'm like, why? Why do you do <laughs> We can meet. Just we can meet. I know what your face looks like. You know what my face looks like. You know, we can meet. Or just do a phone call. Right. Um, uh, so I think that that generational thing is, is again, it's this, it's crap. It's a right. lazy shortcut to, again, this hopeful binary answer. Oh, well, 
the young people want that. There is, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, I think you've touched when you say hopeful binary. Like, I think everyone, there is so much uncertainty now and there is no clarity. And there, frankly, there's no solution that makes everyone happy. And so I think people are hoping that there is a solution. You know, they're hoping, and I think about right. leaders in particular, they hope that there's a way to reach everyone and have them feel connected. And and what I'm hearing from you is it's going to be messy, right? Like if you're making these decisions, if you're leading, embrace, like you're going to be, it's going to be messy. Is that it's right? It's going to be messy. It, you, you were never going to make everyone happy. And I think the false promise of digital is that it was something that was going to make everyone uh, happy. Right. <laughs> that, you know, because it was sold to us pre-pandemic, as this utopian future. Well, in the future, everyone's going to be able to work from wherever they want. They'll have the ultimate flexibility and whatever. And then all of a sudden, you're like my next door neighbor who during the pandemic went from like traveling all the time for her job to back to back to back to back Zoom calls from like 8.30 in the morning till 6.30 every night with a half hour break in the middle. That sucked, right? And And so what's the... What's the happy median? Well, it's different for everyone and it's not going to work out perfectly all the time. And that's okay, right? I think if you can acknowledge that, that's okay. I think the other thing too, with these generalizations around it or like, oh, X percent of people want to go back to the office and X percent never want to do it is what the common denominator is amongst most people is the sense of like, they just want some flexibility. They want to be able to do their work in a way that's meaningful in a way that does connect them with other people. They don't necessarily all want to do it alone or, or the majority of people, but they also want that flexibility that if their kid is sick or if they have the desire to like go for a bike ride on a sunny day for two hours and they have some free time in that, that they'll be able to like get up off their desk or get away from the office and do that and then still go and do their work and be rewarded for the work that they're doing. And we still have, there's a, a wonderful book that I read um, by Celeste Headley, who's a, a fabulous writer. What she was talking about was that, you know, we have been working in a very 19th century model, even though we've had computers for, you know, half a century, right? Like we're still like, yeah, you can do your work anywhere. We've had the internet and we've had computers like, you know, for, for, I don't know, 30 years, we've had the internet, right? It's like, you could do your work anywhere and you can telecommute and whatever, but like you are being rewarded for eight hours of work where you will be sitting in a desk. And if you leave that desk, you know, you, you must punch out your virtual punch clock. And there are companies now that are, that are like, we will sell you keystroke monitoring software. It's like, Oh, Bart, I saw your keystrokes were down 13% between the hours of, you know, four and uh, four 30 the other day. So I don't know, do we need to have a performance review? <laughs> um, it's, you know, it, people just want to be treated like adults. They want to be given the agency to do the work that they're capable of doing when they're capable of doing it. Um, and, and if something is important enough that they have to come in, Sure. But I think that it's that idea of flexibility, mm. right? It's that idea of trust. And that's a very hard thing for leaders it is. to to surrender to the people they're working with. So so maybe that's a good transition to the last thing I want to ask you about, which is, you know, we've got people who are listening who maybe don't get to set the policies of their workplace, right? Maybe they, you know, work at Twitter and they've been told be in the office, you know, hardcore work nonstop, or maybe they work at a fully remote place. 
And so the first, so I have two questions for you. The first is what advice would you give to people who are in a workplace where maybe they aren't fully aligned with the policies, but they're really still expected to lead in them? So that's question one. And question two is whether you're a leader or not, what are some ways that you can intentionally inject some analog goodness or joy into your work life? So I'll I'll let you tackle those two. Well, the first one, if you're working in a place where you're not aligned with the way they do things, is probably a question better posed to my wife, the career coach. <laughs> um, because, you know, at a certain point, how important is that to you, right? Like, are you staying there because just for the financial reward of it? If it gets to the point where it is the way that the work at that place is is being done is antithetical to the way that you need to work or you believe the people under you should work, it's going to come to a point of conflict. And so I think the best way to, let's say, push back against it or the best way to to talk about it is be open to that idea that this is an experiment and try to gather data if it isn't working about why it's not working and suggest opportunities for analog interactions, if you want to call them that, where you might be able to inject some of that back in. And how is that? I, I think it's identifying what are the things that people miss if you're working entirely remotely, let's say. What are the interactions that people say they miss? Or what are the things that you're having difficulty with? Like one of the people I talked to for the book was this woman, Jennifer Kolstad, and she's essentially the head interior designer for Ford. So she designs and had her team designs kind of the offices of Ford Motor Company all over the world, including, you know, Dearborn, Michigan. And they were, they, you know, during the pandemic, they were, they were kind of trying to come up with the big master document plan for what it would look like to go back to work once restrictions eased in mid-2020, 2021. And they were doing it all through different software, Miro design software, teleconferencing software, and so on. And they were really having a hard time with it. Everything was getting bogged in, stupid details and things. So Jennifer decided to call her team. They, they got together in an office in Detroit. And in three hours, they had an in-person meeting with you know, walls and whiteboards and sticky notes, and they just got it done. They figured it out. And she said what was missing were the walls. It was the people in the room and the walls to put stuff up on, right? And so if something's not working, if something's working and it works for everyone, great. There's no reason to sort of, you know, say, well, we have to do it as as an analog way. But if something, if, if, if an activity that previously worked um, or part of the business that previously worked is not working anymore, if there's tension there or a lack of new ideas or creativity or communication stifled what can you do what what can you do or what did you do before and what are ways to do it that are limited experiments right so you could do you know the easiest is like all right well let's get everyone together for lunch or let's get everyone together for this one sales meeting or let's get everyone together for a weekend retreat or let's do like a regular what is that activity and what are ways that you can sort of try that out and then gather whatever data you have whether it's you know actual sales data and you know whether it's improved stuff or surveys although surveys you know who knows was that better do people want to keep doing that did it prove useful or not and continue that experiment because it's never going to end it's not like we arrive at some finite point like this is the future the future of work is endless experimentation that's that's my prediction I just saved you a million bucks. Done. There you go. Yeah, there's yeah. endless experimentation. I think, you know, as you said, 
view it as an experiment because we've seen in the right. last several years, you know, pronouncements about we will be back in September, we will be back in January, we will be back three days. Like they are always subject to change. And, and so let me ask you the second question again, as we live through this age of endless experimentation, what is the single simplest way for people, whatever they do, wherever they work, whatever their situation to inject more analog goodness into their life? Get away from the screen, right? Get away, find, find opportunities to get away from the screen, even if it's just a five minute walk outside or a 10 minute walk outside. Um, can, can this email be a lunch meeting? Can this Zoom be a face-to-face -face phone call and a walk? Can we deprogram ourselves away from a, a version of work that's entirely you know, geared towards devices and, and the sort of restrictions of software? And I think that's the simplest way is, is where can an actual conversation take place, right? Where can, where can this become an, a, a real interaction? And I think part of it is just, again, stepping outside, going for a walk, doing something beyond the screen that makes you, once you look up from it, you realize that there's a big world beyond that screen, that the world isn't digital. The world isn't online. The, the world, you know, the, you know, online is, is in the digital world, the digital sort of realm is important. It's crucial. It's critical, but it's not the world, the world that we're dealing with and the world of most businesses that, that people are dealing with is still the world beyond the screens, right? That's where your customers are. That's where your products are. That's where the consequences are. Not online. As I listen to you through my headset and phone, I say, makes sense. I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. It's here. a beautiful day. Maybe next time we'll go for a Sun bike ride when the weather is warmer. Dave, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on the pod. Um, I think it's an important book, you know, as we all, as you say, live through this kind of uh, analog digital experiment. There's never going to be, you know, what I'm taking away, there's never going to be clarity about the future of work. Let's live through the, the experiment, but really embrace the flexibility and embrace analog. So thanks so much for sharing your time and for writing a great book. Thanks for having me on. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Sachs about the revenge of analog ironically recorded digitally not in person and uh, a good reminder of how critical it is as leaders as we navigate hybrid this uh, kind of mixed return to office and the starvation for connection that has been built up over the last three years how critical it is to create those moments that bring us together if you get a chance pick up dave's book or any of his books they're easy and fabulous reads. Can't recommend them enough. Next time on the pod, I'm pleased to welcome the Humphrey Group's Director of Learning Experience Design, Justina Pereira-Bonowska. And Justina joins me to talk about how you can make your communication more accessible. And I'll admit, this is not something that I thought much about years ago, but I have become a believer. We at the Humphrey Group believe that accessibility is not just a nice thing to do or even in at times a legal imperative but really is critical for any leader who wants to reach their audience and Yastina brings some concrete and tangible steps you can take to make your communication more readily received by all audiences and more impactful when it is so tune in next time for that 
In the meantime, if you're enjoying the pod, please rate and review it. Always appreciate it. And go forth and inspire.